Glory be to God. Thank you, Father God. Mm. God, we bless you this morning. We thank you for your faithfulness. That's from generation to generation. Truly, you've been faithful to us. And so we bless you, we praise you, we magnify you. Thank you. When we had no strength, you picked us up. When we were down, you encouraged us. When it looked like we were not going to make it, you said it was not over. As a Father God, we bless your name. Thank you for your goodness, your tender, loving kindness. We honor you. We bless you. We praise you, Lord. We thank you for being able to come before your presence. You say, we are two or three of us are gathered together. There you are in the midst. We know you are here. We know you are with us. And if you be for us, no one or nothing can be against us. And so in that confidence, we bless your name this morning. We bless you for your word, that your word will find good ground in our hearts. It will accomplish the purpose for which you are sending it. Your word will never return unto you void. And so, Father, we thank you. Now and forever, in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Good morning, everyone, and welcome again to the service that's coming to you from World Outreach Church for All Nations here in Lawrenceville, Georgia, where we are still maintaining all the health guidelines as it's been given us with our, from our local and state governments. Work fan for short. Uh, our vision here is building strong families and serving global communities. And so for all of our friends and family that's joining us on the various platforms across from the world, we welcome you. We thank you for joining with us, for allowing us to come into your space. And we hope and pray that you continue to tune in in Jesus' name. And in particular, let me just say this as I get into the message this morning. I've been teaching for the last four or five weeks now on race relations and reconciliation. And what we've done on Wednesday nights following each Sunday, we are targeting and specifically praying about Sunday's messages. And so I want to encourage you to stay tuned in during the week. On Wednesdays and also on Tuesday, we pray for the ongoing health crisis regarding COVID-19. So really, I just want to encourage you, remind you that on Tuesday nights we are praying and I want us to join, I want you guys to, to join us and also on Wednesday night, we are continuing to pray about the racial conflict and all of the agitation that's happened in the United States. We are praying that God, who is the solution, will minister his solution to us in this hour, in this time, in this season, in Jesus' name, amen? And so this morning, I'm continuing in this series of message, Race, Relations, and Reconciliation. And for this morning's portion, I'm speaking using a title, The Way Forward. Now, if you've been listening to me for the past several weeks, I keep on cautioning you that the message or the solution that we're all seeking cannot be derived in one meeting, in one message, Neither can we get the answer we are looking for through our uh, roundtable discussions or kingdom conversations in one time. It has to take a series of consistently 
addressing the issue to come to the final resolution we are all looking for. Amen? So I just really want to encourage everyone, be patient. Let's go through this journey, and I can assure you that God has an answer and a solution for us in Jesus' name. So this morning, the way forward. God created three institutions that exist for human flourishing. The family, the government, and the church. Now, these institutions, all three of them, must work together in tandem if we are to kill racism or any other perversion, any other uh, vice in a society dead in its tracks. The three institutions must work together. And this morning, as I move into this message on the way forward, let me address the family first. Genesis chapter 1, going Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. Uh, let me read it. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let me just read a couple more scriptures, and then I'm going to come back. Also, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1, 4 and, 1 and 2. Genesis 4, verses 1 and 2. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Please pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention. There are, there are certain things that God is saying to us here. Uh, first of all, in Genesis 1.28, he blessed them, male and female, and told them, male and female, to be fruitful and to multiply. So back in Genesis 4.1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now let me go to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. In verse 15, Malachi 2, 15, there we go. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? Why? Why did God make man and woman one? Why? He seeks godly offspring. Okay? So now, so now you remember... Last week, the message last week was on the reawakening. And in that message, I brought out the fact that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God. There is nothing else that needs to be taken away or nothing that needs to be added. 
And I went to great length to prove to us, to convince us from scriptures how the Bible in the Old Testament prophesied of the coming of the Lord Jesus and how over 300 prophetic saints were fulfilled in that one individual. Okay? Now, the reason I'm saying that this morning is we understand that the family is the fundamental institution of human society. It is the building block of all civilization. It is the foundation upon which everything stands. You start tinkering with the family, you're going to start seeing the result or the manifestation or the result of that tinkering in our society at large. So why am I saying all of this? It is absolutely crystal clear from Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, that God made male and female for the purpose of multiplying and being fruitful. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we saw how Adam knew Eve. Not Adam knowing Adam. Not Eve knowing Eve. Adam knew Eve, and as a result, they fulfilled Genesis 1, 28. They began to multiply. And then in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, clearly, God told us the reason for which he's bringing a man and a woman together in union as one. Why? He said, because he, God, is seeking godly offspring. When you start messing with the foundation, you're going to have problems with the building. I cannot tell you how many buildings I've seen that has crooked foundation, and ultimately, the building inevitably comes down. Amen? So we have to pay attention to these things. I know we live in a time where people are saying truth is relative. We are making up truth as we go. We are redefining truth based on our own appetites, based on what we want and what we like and what we desire. But I am sorry. Truth is not given to you and I to redefine. The Bible said in John chapter 14, Jesus is the way. That truth and the life, we have no right to redefine it. Truth is absolute. It is the word of God. Amen? So family is a masterpiece upon God's creation. It's a masterpiece of God's creation. Family is where we see marriage and parenthood revealing God's character. God put children in families so they can experience his love and learn how to love others. It is very interesting to show how God takes family, that he, God himself, Jesus, came as a part of a family, growing up in the nurturing care of his earthly family. Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52 tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, and that they have favor with God and with man. This is helping us to see the importance that God has when it comes to family. 
And I'm saying it this morning as a way forward because when we look at the family structures in this United States right now, and in fact, indeed, around the world, we are far away from what God originally designed family to be. Therefore, we can say all kinds of things happen that we don't like. The violence, the racism, the hatred, and all the other things that happen, it begins at the foundation. If you don't fix the foundation, you can never fix the building. In Genesis chapter 18, in verses 17 and 19, the way forward, the family, the government, and the church. Genesis 18, 17 and 19, and the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Verse 18. Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Verse 19. For I have known him in order, I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. In other words, God became Abraham's partner. Or, Albert, or rather, Abraham became God's partner because God knew that Abraham would command his household after God. Thus making the home, according to this passage, the incubator for everything godly. And unfortunately, the reverse is also true. Everything ungodly also begins in the house. Amen? As the nation of Israel was about to enter the promised land. And if you recall in the scriptures, the promised land that God took Israel to was a godless society. So as they were about to enter the promised land, God called the parents to be teachers in their home, to constantly teach them in such a way that they release into that world well-discipled children who will advance the purposes of God in their generation. Let's go to the scriptures in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Thank you, Jesus. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Now, again, this is God preparing the parents to know how to train their children as they are about to enter the godless society in the promised land. You shall teach them to your children and shall talk of them when you sit where? In your house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as a as frontlets between your eyes. Verse 9. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, can you get a plainer than that? Many of us send our children to school to think that school is going to put values in them. Some of us send them to church to think that the church will put values in them. And yes, the church helps. We do what we can. And so does the school, by the way. However, the primary responsibility of shaping and forming the values of the minds of our children 
is given to the parents. Go back to that verse 6 for me, please. No, verse 7. Look at what it says. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Who is going to be doing the teaching? The parents. Now, but what happens when the parents don't know anything? Or when the parents themselves are ungodly? Or what happens when the child has to raise him or herself? Who's doing the teaching? And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way. And when you lie down. In other words, every living moment as parents, we have a responsibility to understand that those moments are learning curves. Everything that happens within the house, within the society, that happens in the marketplace, everything that happens is a moment for us to take a chill pill and share some very relevant godly principles with our children. Amen? Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 there. God, God's ways were contrasted with the gods of the nations they were about to possess. Look at this. You shall not go after other gods. The gods of the people who are all around you. My goodness, can it get any clearer than this? For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest, your, lest the anger of God, your God, be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. So God was warning them as they were going to possess this promised land to let them know that the people that you're going to be around, that's going to be around you, they are godless and they have gods other than him. So be careful not to allow their influence in your life, rather be prepared to influence them. So if the family is the incubation of everything godly, and we as parents and children for that matter, have the responsibility to begin to be shaped by godly values. I'm going to come back to that in my closing thought. So the first, the family. Next, we have government. The way forward. Family, government, and the church. Government. Let me go to Romans 13. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Romans 13, verses 1 through to 7. Thank you. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from, except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Go on. Therefore, whoever receives the authority receives the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Verse 4. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For there are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Verse 7, last one. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. And honor to whom honor. 
So right there, we see that government is ordained by God. So let me just quickly say four things about government. Number one, the government is instituted by God for the good of all the society. Now hear this, even bad governments. The government is instituted by God for the good of all society. Even bad governments. Now, let me just quickly read the scripture because when I said bad governments, right there and there, I'm about to lose some of you. John chapter 19, verse 11. John chapter 19, verse 11. A quick reference on bad governments. John 19, 11. Jesus answered. Now, this is when it was before Pilate, Pilate being tried. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So Jesus here helps us to understand that even the wicked rule of Herod or Pilate was given to him by God. So number one, again, four things about government. The government is instituted by God for the good of all the society, even bad governments. Number two, God uses even sinful governments to do his will. Let me give you a scripture on that one. I'm, I'm saying some things that I know I'm going to get some text messages on, but let me just, Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah 25 verses 8 and 9. You must understand that God is sovereign. And God does, is not a Republican and is not a Democrat. Je Jeremiah chapter 25 verses 28 and 9. No, verses, 20, uh, verses 8 and 9, I'm sorry. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Now, look at what God calls him. My servant. My servant. Now, you don't have to know too, many, too much Bible to know Nebuchadnezzar was not a good man. And yet... Because God was about to use him as an instrument. He says, he's my servant. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. So God uses even sinful governments to do his will. Another scripture reference, I will not read it, is Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, but I will not read that. Acts 4, verses 27 and 28. Amen? Again, four things about government. Number three, we ought to pray for those who govern us. That's what the Bible says. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. But I'm going to move on. I'm not going to read that. Number four, we should honor and submit to those who govern us. We should make every effort to abide by its laws, show respect to our leaders, and participate in the political process when appropriate. Now, we just read Romans chapter 13. We read verses 1 through 7. I've said this before, but I want to say this now again. And this will be very helpful to many of us. Romans 13 begins to tell us about government and authority. 
But Romans 12 precedes Romans 13. So let's go to Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 19. Look at what it says. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Verse 20, let me read a couple more, a couple more scriptures. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. The closing verse in chapter 12. Do not be overcome by evil, even racism. But overcome evil with good. Now, it's amazing to me that the closing verses of chapter 12 talks about the fact that me and you should not try to avenge ourselves. Don't go rioting and burning down people's businesses and destroying properties, etc., etc. Don't try to avenge yourself of whatever ill justice is taking place around you. Now, why will God say that? God is not telling me and you to forget or ignore injustice. In fact, that is not true at all. Psalms 82, verses 2 through 4. I don't have time to read it. Psalms 82, verses 2 through 4. Read it on your own. God is not telling us to forget or ignore injustice. No. But what God is saying is, He, God, will exercise vengeance now or later. Oh, glory to God. And the government is one of his tools, not the only one, but one of his tools for doing this. So he closes chapter 12 by telling you and I, don't try to avenge yourself. Overcome evil with good. Why? Because I'm going to put government in place as one of my tools, God is saying, that will execute the judgment or the justice that needs to be meted out. Wow, that's amazing. It, it, it helps, it, it just helps to know that God is a total systems God. It's not just saying don't avenge yourself. Just lay down, let them run over you, don't do anything, don't say anything. He said, no, 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 no. You, on your part, don't do that. But on my part, I'm going to put something in place that will address whatever the issue is. So God thinks about everything. He's a systems thinker. Amen? Now, because government is established by God does not mean that all government actions are right. If the government forbids what God commands, or if the government commands what God forbids, then God's commandments take precedence over human authority. We see this clearly in the book of Acts. When Peter said, we shall obey God and not man. So, for example, Daniel's friends, 
Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they chose to disobey King Nebuchadnezzar and face being burnt alive rather than worship idols. We see this in Daniel chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Years later, when King Darius forbade his subjects from praying to anyone by himself, Daniel openly disobeyed. We see this again in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. So as believers, we must understand that the kingdom of heaven can never fitly fit into any political party platform. We must banish this idea that the GOP is the problem and that the Democrats are the solution. That is madness. Satan is the problem and God is the solution. All human governments will eventually end and Jesus will reign over everyone forever and ever. That's what Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 tells us. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and a government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. So the way forward, number one, the family. Number two, the government. Now, this is very interesting. Because everyone that is in government is a part of a family. So if the family is warped, if the foundation is wrong in the family, that man or woman grows out of the family, goes in the government with a warped thinking. That is why we must get the family right. And when we look at our world today, we see the families in dysfunctionality all over the place. And in particular in the United States, and in particular more so in our black communities. We need to fix that. There is no fixing our problems if we do not value ourselves. If we do not value who we are, why and what, what, how can we expect others to value us? We need to fix it. We need to fix it. We need to fix injustice, but we must fix our family, our family values. Absolutely. So the way forward, the family, the government, and then there's the church. There's the church. In Matthew chapter 16, Finally, on the church, Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. Ah. Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. Jesus is speaking. He said, I said to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on the earth, will be bound in heaven. And whatever you lose on the earth will be loosed in heaven. And there we are. The church has withstood attack after attack after attack after attack for years. But the church is still here. In promising the new covenant, God promised in Jeremiah chapter 31, in verse 33, and Ezekiel 36, verse 26, that he will replace our hearts of stone with the hearts of flesh. That's what the church does. So we have a family, we have government, but the church is the place where the hardened hearts of men and women are touched by God and replaced by God. In other words, God's system for transformation 
does not begin and end with behaviors, but it works from the inside out. Whatever change we are looking for, if we are going to end discrimination, prejudice, uh, racial injustice, all of those, if we are ever going to end any of those things, there must be a transformation that cannot happen with government, but that has happened through the power of the Holy Spirit as God begins to transform us from the inside out. When a man's heart or a woman's heart is changed, there will be a manifestation through their behavior. In his New York best-selling book, Live Like Jesus, Glenn Blanchard describes four domains of leadership, four domains, or four parts of leadership, namely the heart, the head, the hand, and habits. And in that book, it was trying to help us to understand that the heart is where your character and values are. There's a scripture in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. If you can give it, give it to me, the New Living Translation. Proverbs 4, 23. New Living Translation. Hallelujah. The heart is where our character and our values are formed. Thank you. Look at what it says. Proverbs 4.23, NALT. Guard your heart above all else. Why? For it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart above all else. Why? Because it determines the course of your life. In other words, your head, your hand, and your habits, literally, Follow your heart. They follow your heart. Amen? So racism, as we know it all, racial injustice, as we know it, is fundamentally a problem of the heart. Now, I'm grateful for all of the legislative progress we've made since the 60s. I'm really grateful for them. And I'm grateful even for the ones that we're talking about now, the ones that will be soon enacted. I'm grateful for them. They are needful, they have a role, they have a place. But we must understand that while the government can change laws, they can never change hearts. This is the work of the Spirit of God that is at work through his church. Let me just quickly go to my closing thoughts. Let's go to Luke chapter 10. In verse 30 through 37. Luke chapter 10. In about five minutes, I should bring this to a close. Luke 10, verse 30. Thank you. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of all his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, look, at, look who comes by. A certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite. Now who's a Levite? A Levite is a priest's assistant. 
So in this story, like priest, like assistant. Like priest, like give that. The Levite is trained by the priest. <laughs> Just like the father trains his own son. So when a priest went on the other side, the Levite saw what the priest did. Oh, if the priest went on the other side, oh, I mean, what am I supposed to do? Just follows the priest leading. So likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, they are, they are working from the same SOP, <laughs> obviously. Because they didn't get there at the same time, but they are working from the same playbook. So likewise, a Levite, when they arrived at the place, came and looked. Now, that's what's so bad. Actually came and said, oh, wow, look at this. And then passed by on the other side. Verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he joined it, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Let me just stop there. I, I won't read all the verses. What's the point I'm making? The priest and the Levite represent the church. They represent those who should be righteous. As we spoke about last week or two, two weeks ago, righteousness produces justice. Righteousness produces mercy. The church who is given the power in righteousness saw something that needed to be done, a man dying, laying on the ground like George Flood was a few months ago and ignored it and walked away on the other side. What's the point I'm making? The church, as the righteous institution on earth, cannot continue to wink at the injustice and all the other things that's happening around us. We must get involved. We must speak out where we can. And we must address the issue by teaching ourselves what God's expectation is. So my final thoughts, finally, number one, we must be a value-driven family. All of us. My final thoughts on the way forward. Number one, we must be a value-driven family. Value is defined as ideals or customs that define how a person or family functions. So all of us must be a value-driven family. Number two, and I'm moving very quickly here, parents are called to model for the rest of the family. Proverbs 22, verse 6, the Bible says, train up a child in the way that they should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. Parenting is not just some leisure activity. No, it is a huge responsibility. We model for the family what we want to see happen. And may I just say this? Many of the young people that have talked to me in the past couple of years, that are despondent and discouraged about being married or, or, or having relationships. They've, see, they've pointed at this many times to say what they see model for them is not what they hear about in church. They say there's a huge gap between what is being preached or spoken versus what they see lived up before them. They want to see authenticity. You cannot preach it like the Pharisees and live a different way. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. So parents, we have a tall order to follow Christ, manifest him in our home, and hopefully in and through that, train our children to follow in our footsteps. Number three, seize the learning moments. I read it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Teach it in the house. When you're, walking on, when you're walking on the wayside, when you're sitting down, uh, sitting down in your house, when you go on vacation, when you go to the stores, 
Anytime you guys have any kind of interaction together, find a moment to bring a relevant truth to that situation so that the kids can catch a life experience. Number four, in the thoughts, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the moving forward, number four, me and you, all of us, that do not like what we've seen in our governments, God's given us the incredible opportunity to elect godly officials. Why are we keeping on sending the same old, same old, same old, same old, same old godless people to Washington? Or to the state house in Georgia? Or wherever you are living in? If you don't like what they are saying or what they are doing, vote them out of office. We have the power of the vote. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So the problem with us is, number one, when we go to the polling vote, we are not looking at the godly values. We're just looking at the, uh, the political parties. Is it a Democrat or a Republican? Come on. We need to grow beyond that. What did these guys stand for? Are they godly in their values? If you can't find a GOP or them that fits the bill, vote for an independent. Don't keep on losing your godly conscience at the table of political preference. That's where we're in the mess that we're in. Elect godly, and I emphasize, godly government officials. The entire Old Testament is a template from God to us on how to find and what to look for when, when we're electing people into office. Of course, that's, that's, that's another series by itself. We don't have time to deal with that here. Number five. You know, when I was ministering last Sunday, I mentioned three quotes from Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi. And the one that really stuck with me, all of them were good, is the one that he said, be the change that you want to see in the world. Be the change that you want to see in the world. So we all want to see racial justice. Yes, it's a good thing. What are you doing about that? How are you dealing? What are you doing to make that come to pass? Please give me the scripture, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. This, this is a verse all of us should know. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Thank you. Therefore, look at what this is. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. I can't be complaining about police brutality, complaining about uh, racial discrimination, and me myself, I'm a racist. I can't. That's, that's a wash. I will never be used by God as a catalyst for change. If I say a white man, and immediately because he's white, I say, ah, oh, this guy's no good. Or a brown person, or whoever it is, or even forget white and black. How about ethnicity? Igbo man, Hausa man, Yoruba man, Kanuri man. You see them and immediately say, ah, oh, this guy, hey, this. Immediately. How about West Africa? Oh, you see a Ghanaian, you see a Cameroonian, you see a Sierra Leonean. And immediately we have our caste. How in the world can God use us to change the world? Well, we cannot be the change we're looking for. Proverbs 18, 24. He that will have friends, the Bible says, must show himself friendly. A man who has friends must himself be friendly. How many white friends, Mexican, Hispanic friends do we have? 
friends, not acquaintances. Your naming ceremonies, your birthdays, your weddings, your anniversaries. How many of them do you invite to your parties? Ah, oh, I want racial justice. Hallelujah, I'm going to march. Ah, yeah, yeah, racial justice, I'm coming. We are not going to change our world if we are not willing to change. The change begins with us. And it must be intentional. It must be intentional. Listen, that's why I like this young generation. They go to school, they have all kinds of friends. Asians, Caucasians, Latinos. For these young people, man, have a color. It's, I mean, they, they don't see it. Thank God for them. If you can just put some righteousness in them, bang! We're going to turn this world right side up. Had it not been for them, Obama would never have become president. Because whites and blacks, everyone voted for him because they didn't see color. But leave it to my generation. <laughs> not only do we see colors, we see ethnicity. Ah, with this one, which, which state are you from? <laughs> Anambra, ah, yes. Imo State, ah, yeah. Akwaiba, Undo State. Crazy! God deliver us! We must be the change that we want to see in the world. And lastly, we must operate with the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 First Corinthians 2.16, Paul tells us that we have the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? Very simply. Give it to me in the Amplified. Amplified classic. Thank you. The mind of Christ. For you who has known, for who has known or understood the mind, the counsels, and the purposes of the Lord, so as to guide and instruct him and give him knowledge. But we have the mind of Christ. The Messiah. What is the mind of Christ? We hold the thoughts, the feelings, and the purposes of God's heart. The thoughts, the feelings, and the purposes of God's heart. In other words, whatever you are thinking, your natural man, replace it with the thoughts, the feelings, and the purposes of God's heart. That's the way we are going to change things. Each one reaching one. Each one reaching one. Not Washington. No, no, no. Not Washington. Washington. Not Washington. No. If Washington could have done it, it would have been done a long time ago. But each one of us intentionally engaging, reaching one through the thoughts and the feelings and the purposes of God's heart. And so, Father, we want to thank you for this incredible time that we have before you today. We bless your name for your grace, for your goodness. We thank you, Lord God, for the opportunity that we have to display your glory, your power, your presence to our world. Thank you, Lord God, for the restoration that you are bringing into our families. Thank you, Lord God, for the restoration of godly order and rule in and through our governments. And yes, God, we thank you for the reawakening that's coming to our churches so we can show and display your glory to the world at large. We thank you for the opportunity to become children of the Most High God and put you on display in our world. And Father, I pray for that man, that woman, 
who this morning may not know you as the Lord and Savior. Lord Jesus, that by the power of your spirit, you are touching their heart, bringing a revelation to them of how, of how much they need you. We know that we are saved by grace through faith. Not of works, but it's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And so, Lord God, I thank you right now for those who are making the first answer for salvation. And if that is you, if you are coming to a place to realize that you need Jesus in your life because you are not born again, you need to be born again. You need to become a child of God. You need to believe and receive the incredible gift of forgiveness that Jesus have available for you. He came to forgive you of your sins and to bring you into a place of restoration so that your destiny in God can be fulfilled. If that is you, we want to pray for you now. Just repeat this after me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this incredible opportunity to come to know you. I acknowledge I've lived without you. I thank you for your gift of forgiveness. I accept that gift now. I receive forgiveness of my sins. I thank you for bringing me into your family as a born again believer. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that will begin to teach me and guide me as I develop and grow in this new faith. I thank you, and I bless you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.